Well, today we are wrapping up our series on Job, and Job is a story that has a lot more questions than answers. And if Job were a play, it would happen on two scene levels. And first scene level is on earth, on the ground, where Job is from us. And Job is an honest man, and a good man, and a devoted follower of God. He also is very wealthy and is the most influential man in the East. So that's Job. But then we have another scene level, which is way up here in heaven. And up in heaven, God is gathered with some angels in his... uh, It's very nice to be in heaven, by the way. You guys should come up here and hang out. Heaven is good. But God is having all these angels come and give reports about... Um, whatever they're giving reports about. And what's interesting, again, all these questions about Job, is that Satan shows up in the heavenly throne room of God, and God says to Satan, hey, what's going on? And Satan says, well, you know, I've been roaming around the earth, looking around, checking things out. And God says, well, have you, have you ever noticed my friend Job? Job, he's an honest man, a good man, he's devoted you checked him out? Satan said, bah. Job, that guy, this is justice. Job is good and loves you because of what you give to him. That's it. It's a justice transaction of Job does good, you give him good things. God gives him good things, Job does good things. That's it. And God says, no way. I'll take your bet that if, because Satan said, if you take away Job's stuff, he'll curse you to your face. Job's like, God said, no way. God said that Job will follow me and be devoted to me. So this is the heavenly scene happening in the story. So we go back down, which I'm climbing a ladder, not jumping, because I know that's distracting. Back on earth, unfortunately for Job, Satan takes away all his stuff all his kids, and Job is now suffering. And what does Job do? He does not curse God. He says this, God gives, God takes away. God's name be ever blessed. Next, Satan takes away Job's health. He gives him sores all over his body, and he's in pain and suffering. And now, Job's wife comes up to him and says, Job, give it up. Just curse God and die. What she's saying to him is, Job, there's there's no heavenly level. It is earth and that's it. Just give it up. Give God up. Job says, no. We take the good days from God. Why not also take the bad days? So the bet is on. And it's a good start for Job. But then come these three friends, these three miserable comforters. Of course, at the beginning, they sit seven days in silence with Job, which that is good. But then they begin just lecturing Job. Job, confess your sin. What did you do wrong? This is a justice issue because a God is a God of justice. So if you must have sinned and now this is just punishment for your sin. The conventional wisdom of the day that the friends were stuck in was that it's justice. You do this, you get that. 
If you do something good, you get something good. You do something bad, you get something bad. That was all they could see. And Job, he insists that he didn't do anything wrong. He adheres to his innocence. Job cries out to God and says, God, I demand a counsel. I want to see you. I want to hear from you. Tell me, what did I do wrong? Job is adhering to his innocence. And in some way, Job is also kind of stuck in that justice level that he was innocent and he was being unjustly punished. But in all of Job's suffering, he did not curse God. In fact, Job held on to this idea that God is close. We hear this even in Job's asking God, stop being silent. If Job is believing that there is a God who can be talking and communicating with him. And so God is out there, and Job wants connection with him. All right, so there's our review of the story for the first 37 chapters of Job. Now, today, I want to talk about God speaking. So God finally speaks, and here's today. God's response to Job and Job's response to God. And to begin with God's response to Job, I want to pull out three things that, um, to notice about God's response. The first is that God is not mad at Job. God is not mad at Job. And perhaps this is the whole point of the book of Job, that God is not mad. You know who we read these friends misrepresenting God as mad? And what's really sad is that over these many centuries of this story being around, it seems like a lot of people are reading the friends part and thinking that's the truth about God when they are misrepresenting God. But the truth is God is incredibly proud of Job. You know, God's not mad at him. He's like amazed. He's like going back to that scene with Satan. He's like, hey, have you considered my friend Job, who's pretty amazing? Look at him. Consider him. God's proud of Job. God loves Job. God cares about him. And so when Job responds in his how he responds to suffering, God is also proud of how he's responding. God understands that he's suffering and in pain and in loss and in grief. God gets that. So when I read God's response to Job, when God speaks, I hear it with a tone of love and pride and almost giddy playfulness about God being able to connect with his friend Job. God wants to connect. God wants to show Job something about who he is. And so there's a tone of of playfulness and love in how God responds. Well, the second thing to notice in what in God's response, is that God does not tell Job about the bet with Satan. Just leaves it in mystery. God doesn't say, hey, this is what's happening in heaven and explain things. No, God doesn't answer his question. Do you know who had all the answers? Those three miserable friends. They had all the answers. Isn't it interesting? They think they know all about God and they, they're telling Job all this stuff about God. But the thing about them and their answers is that they had a little piece of God, but they were separated from the source 
of truth about God. They had this idea about justice. God is just, yes. But they were separated from the mind and heart of who God is. And so God wants to use some questions to help Job get a peek up into the heavenly to see something of awe and wonder about the mind and heart of God. And then third thing to notice about God's response is that God does not give answers. Instead, he asks more questions. And perhaps you've noticed in your own life how when you get an answer, it's like a period at the end of a sentence. It's just done. That question, done. Moved on. Actually, I noticed this to Susie and I in talking about with people, premarital people and married people, that there's this idea of a puzzle. That if you have a question and then somebody just gives you an answer, it's just like, well, it just ends the puzzle of it all. And I think what's interesting about a question is that a question opens up in exploration and learning and growth. There's some adventure in a question to find out and to learn. And so God is inviting, through his questions, he's inviting Job up into this heavenly scene to see something about who God is and to enter into the awe and wonder of who God is. In a sense, God is, with these questions, trying to lift Job's attention, which, you know, is really stuck in his right here, right now suffering, to lift his eyes up and for Job to be able to see something about who God is, to lift his eyes up and to be caught up in the awe and wonder of God. And something God wants to give in those questions is not just, here's the answer, or let me tell you something, but instead inviting Job into discovery, to discover for himself the truth about God's wisdom, God's power, God's providential care in all of creation. All right, so we're going to, I am going to read, and I'm going to attempt to read with a tone of love and care, joy that God has toward Job, God's response. Now, when I think about this and the way God is talking to Job, the only human connection and experience I can make to it is me as a dad to my kids. Now, um, sometimes my kids wake up every day and say, Ah, why do we have to go to school? You're ruining my life. Maybe that's like Job. Doesn't maybe see the whole picture. As an adult, I know, okay, school might not be the best thing ever, but you are growing and there's something happening, right? I have perspective that they don't. And so how in the world do I as a parent talk to my kids? Sometimes it's hard to communicate the truth of something that's beyond your understanding. So, let me try to read with a tone of love and God wanting to show Job the power, the wisdom, and the providential care that is existing all around him. So we begin. And now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. Okay, just pausing. It has to be a violent storm. It has to be this big, huge, powerful thing because Job needs power. You know, later we see Elijah get like a still small voice. 
But right here, Job needs the power of God. And so on an earthly level, a storm represents fear. But in that center of this storm isn't fear, but it's love. It's God right there with Job. And God says, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? All right, pull yourself together, Job. Stand up tall, up on your feet. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. I want you to think about this. Ready? Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much, you know, who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? You know, how was its foundation poured? Who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted in praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds, tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen, so it couldn't run loose. And I said, stay here. This is your place. You, your wild tantrums are confined to this place. God is inviting Job into the awe and wonder of thinking about God and creation. This is not a harsh-toned barrage of questions to shame Job. This is God's attempt to lift Job's eyes up, to see something more, to experience the awe and wonder of God. This lavish, abundant, just free-giving grace that God is about. So God's answer to Job crying out is, hey, Job, look around. Look around at all these things that I made just out of my own creativity and just for my own pleasure and fun. Look at all these things that I sustain and I keep going because I just keep putting out more and more grace. I keep it going. No one deserves it. I just do it because I want to. And I delight in it. So God's answer to Job is, look up to see something in this heavenly realm where it's all being held together by grace, which is undeserved and it's abundant. So you think about Satan back at the initial bet. Satan was betting on justice. Oh, Job, he'll do what you want because you give him stuff. And God said, no. There is something way, way more than justice at work here. There is my grace just being poured out everywhere. And that is what was superior. And we get to Job's response. And Job's first response to God was repentance. Here's what Job said. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Isn't that amazing? From the message translation, Job says, I'm sorry, forgive me. 
I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. Job, he never turned away from God. He never cursed God. You know, Job's folly was that his, his eyesight was down. His vision was just stuck on justice and things only of this earth. And he repented of that and said, Oh, God, I did not know or see all of who you are. And then Job's next response was forgiveness. You know, after God talked to Job, he actually turned his attention to the three friends. It's awesome what God says to the three friends. Here's what God said. I've had it with you and your two friends. I am fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me. Not the way my friend Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my friend Job. Sacrifice a burnt offering on your own behalf. And my friend Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking nonsense about me and for not being honest with me as he has. Isn't that awesome? Now it's up to Job. Job to be their intercessor. Job has the opportunity to take revenge on these terrible friends. He has the opportunity to, you know, get his own, like, revenge on them of, oh, yeah, God, God, yep, give them what they deserve. Job could do that, but Job makes the choice because he just saw the awe and wonder of God and the abundant grace that God has poured out everywhere, and Job thinks, oh, no, I will forgive you guys because I want to join in on God giving out grace and pouring it out everywhere. So yeah, you guys made a mistake, but you are forgiven. You guys can come along, join me in this adventure with God. Job can forgive. Job's third response was grace. Because he had this perspective, you know, peeking up into heaven and seeing the awe and wonder of God and God's abundant grace. He now has received that, and now he can give grace out, just like he did with his friends. We see that Job's life is restored. He's given more children. And what's amazing in this story is this great detail about the kids. You know, in conventional wisdom of the time, the sons were the real deal. And the daughters were just kind of like footnotes. You know, back in the day, the social tradition was that sons got names and they got inheritances. Daughters, they didn't get an inheritance. You know, daughters, you know, they're not going to get paid an equal salary as men. You know, daughters, you know, they, their spiritual gifts are a little bit lesser, so they're not going to be able to fully use those. You know, that's like conventional wisdom of the day. But Job has just experienced God's wonder and awe and grace. And he's like, no way, my daughters are awesome, just like my sons. And so in the story, they get named. They get named. Here's what Job, the story says about Job. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. 
There was not a woman in that country as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. It's amazing that Job taps into this grace of just naming his daughters ridiculous beauty names. Like, to name Dove and Cinnamon and then Dark Eyes, which, literal translation, translation of her name, Horn of Eyeshadow. It's like naming your daughter Maybelline. <laughs> but Job's like, this is awesome. I have a daughter. I'm going to just name her the most awesome beauty name possible. And just gushes it out on her. Job had received God's grace, and now he was abundant and lavish in also giving it. Beginning of the story, Job was an honest, good man, devout follower of God. After the end of the story, he also is an honest, good man, devout, but he also has gained this like awe and wonder of seeing who God is and giving that to everyone around him. So I want to wrap up with something practical from Job. So in God's response to Job, God lists over 20 things in creation. He says, look around, Job, look at this, look at that, and just consider my wisdom, my power, my providential care in keeping this world going. I want to draw our attention to one of those things, the ostrich. Now, the ostrich is pretty amazing, and it gives us hope because God simply created the ostrich, and it's crazy. Here's what it says. The ostrich flaps her wings futilely. All those beautiful feathers, but useless. She lays her eggs on the hard ground, never leaves, leaves them there in the dirt exposed to the weather, not caring that they might get stepped on or cracked or trampled by some wild animal. She's negligent with her young, as if they weren't even hers. She cares nothing about anything. She wasn't created very smart, that's for sure. Wasn't given her fair share of good sense. But when she runs, oh, how she runs. Laughing, leaving horse and rider in the dust. I love this. Because you could be the ostrich and just think, oh, injustice. Give me feathers, but I can't fly. Injustice. You made me stupid. <laughs> I think you're giggling for all your friends that you're just thinking of. <laughs> injustice. I was born just an egg dropped anywhere, abandoned by my mom. When I cracked out of that egg, there was no one there for me. I was alone to fend for myself. Injustice. And that's the way an ostrich could think on the earth level. But from the heavenly scene, here's what God says. Injustice? No way. These ostriches are my personal pets. They're my little things. You know, other animals, I give them some kind of instinct to figure out how to 
find food and eat. I give mothers like this instinct to take care of their babies. Yeah, I do that for other animals. But for the ostriches, they are my own pets. They are my very own. So each and every one is a miracle that it even makes it out of the egg into life. Each and every one is special to me because when they are cracked out of that egg, that little chick is mine to care for. And my providential care is all around my little baby ostriches. And when they grow up, how awesome that they run. They run so fast and they are so ridiculous and I completely delight in them. So the point, if God loves and cares for his crazy little pet birds, how much more does he care and love you? A person made in his own image, able to talk and correspond and communicate with God, able to receive God's grace and then pass it on to others and make this world amazing. How much more God loves you. I want us to watch a little video of an ostrich running alongside some guys riding their bicycles. And I invite you into worship. To worship God for making this crazy ostrich and all of God's provision for that bird. And to worship God as he delights in you, just exactly as you are, not producing something or making something or useful, but just because of who you are. He loves you and delights in you.